You're listening to the Broadway Podcast Network. Visit bpn.fm to discover more. Have you ever been to Newfoundland? Yeah, so the the producers took the the original cast, the original Broadway cast before we did our pre-Broadway run in Toronto. We flew up and made a stop in Newfoundland. And I have to tell you, that's how it's pronounced, Newfoundland. 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 Yeah, like understand Newfoundland. Oh, you get in big trouble if you say it wrong, rightfully so, but it's often mispronounced. Um, yeah, so our producers who are who are just amazing, Junkyard Dog Productions is the name of our lead producers, and they mm-hmm. felt it was very important for us to get up there and sort of meet everyone and see everything, and we got to give them this gift of the show that we've been working on, hoping to say thank you in a way to say, is this okay? Do we sort of have your blessing? And did you do the show for them? I wish we could have done the full, the full blown skit. Right. Um, but unfortunately, uh, as you may or may not know, Gander, Newfoundland is not a huge town. Nowhere in Newfoundland is considered actually a huge town. So there are no facilities that could house a, a full production. Um, certainly not our, our production. So what we did was a, a really cool concert version and we performed it in their ice hockey arena in the, the wow. steel community center. Yeah. Which is pretty crazy. We talk about it in the show. And they, they literally became rock concerts. It was insane. Everyone who's anyone in Newfoundland and, and beyond came and got to hear their stories and their friends' stories and the stories of their people and their culture and their region told. And and we all went into it going, you know, we've done the show, you know, in other cities and we're comfortable with it and we're going to be able to keep it together and we're going to be strong. And then as soon as the first drum beat happened, our show starts with like a dun 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 you know, everyone in the audience starts screaming. And throughout the whole, whole performance, they're screaming back and laughing at things and loving it. And we're bawling. We're trying so hard to keep it together and we are failing miserably. <laughs> the end of the, the end of the concert, we're all just hoarse because we've just been screaming over these people. It was so incredible. It, was, it never happens. This kind of journey that our show took uh, and, the, and the way the show was constructed and the way the show was produced and the way our journey was to Broadway and all of those things. It's the most unique experience any actor could ever have. It's incredible. Welcome, everybody, to a musical theater podcast where we discuss the cultural and emotional impact of some of our favorite musicals in theater history. My name is Jeffrey Scott Parsons. You can call me Jeff. Today, we are talking Come From Away with Mr. Gino Carr. Hey, Gino. It's me. Hi, how are you? I'm so grateful you're here. I'm actually really excited to talk about the show, but this episode also marks two firsts for the podcast. Number one, we are recording a special evening edition, (laughs) and that is because... Oh, yeah, I'm going to explain. Yes, Uh, because I have a four and a half year old. And this is the time of night, the late hours, the, the witching hours, where he actually generally goes to sleep and is quiet for once. Um, so that's why we're recording at night. I'm recording in a in a lovely closet. Yeah, that's why we're doing the sultry evening podcast. <laughs> Which brings me to the second first. You're the first dad we've had on the show. Are you kidding me? No, we've had wow. all of these single gay people. <laughs> <laughs> Well, I'm neither single nor gay, so I guess knock both those off the shelf. Wow. Right? My gosh. Congratulations, Gino. I'm really oh, thank proud you. of you. I feel like a unicorn. Thank you. How long have you and your wife been married? 
Oh, you have to ask me that. So yeah, so this this August, we have been married for 17 years. Wowzers. And when did you decide it was time to make the kiddo? Uh, we're slightly older parents in, in the grand scheme of life, not geriatric uh, per se, but but you know, older than a lot. And we just spent so much time doing our thing. And we started to have sort of this, hmm, I wonder what else feeling in our life. And it sort of became this, if it's meant to be, maybe it'll happen. And then it <laughs> actually happened. And suddenly it was this, okay, now we're going to have a human to take care of. This is a little crazy. So if he's four and a half and Come From Away opened on Broadway in 2017, of which you are an original cast member. Yep. Does that mean you kind of had two babies at the same time? Well, it gets even stranger than that. Let's rewind even further. Get ready for this. Okay. Today marks five years since the first day of rehearsals at La Jolla Playhouse for the world premiere. Stop it. Yeah, today. Isn't that crazy? Elliot was in, in utero at this point. He would be born in August. So he was jumping and kicking to the show before he was out of the womb, uh, opening night. Nancy has all these memories of him just dancing along inside her to Aww. come from away. So he's been, as you said, like uh, I've had two babies. Literally, he and the come from away experience are so intertwined that it's almost hard sometimes to, you know, separate them at all and think about them as two different parts of my life. It's just he and come from away are my, are my babies. And were they able to be with you throughout the whole thing? Like, did they go to New York uh, with you? Yes, they went to New York with me. They did not go to Toronto with me, our pre-Broadway engagement. And they did go to uh, D.C., Ford's Theater in D.C. with me. And did it just start out with an appointment at an audition? Um, yeah, so San Diego is a much smaller market than, than, say, New York and some of the other markets. So for the most part, if you've been working in this city for any you know amount of time, you can still go into open calls, but a lot of times you were just sort of called in for callbacks or, you know, sent out feelers for, would you be interested in being seen for this? And La Jolla Playhouse, I'd been in several times for projects and just nothing ever clicked. I went in for this and thought, okay, I don't really know what this show is. I read it and I, you know, had the synopsis and thought, okay, uh, it's a new musical, great artistic team. I'll, I would love to go in and be seen. So I went in, did the audition. It was, I was spent about I think 10 or 12 minutes in the room by myself, which was great. And went through every song in my book, every song inside they had sent me multiple dialects, go back and try it this way, try this faster. Now go back and sing that song from your book. Do you have anything that's contemporary? What about something that's more of a ballad? And so it was one of these auditions where I didn't have time to get nervous because I was so busy jumping through these kind of hoops, which was something I'd never done before to that extent. And that was my only audition it was 10 minutes in the room with Chris Ashley and a camera. And the rest of the artistic team, the producers, the writers, all saw me on video. So you're kidding me. Yeah, which this this does not happen. It was just one of those right place, right time, right situation. Everything worked out. And so I had one audition. I booked the show. And then that was as far as we knew. But then I got a phone call from Chris Ashley two months two months later and said, Do you want to come with back with us and go on the journey? I know you have, you know, your wife and your son Elliot and you have a life there, but we'd love to have you come back and join us. So I didn't have to re-audition. I got invited to do DC and Toronto and make my Broadway debut. So I I, I won the lottery about 10 times over. <laughs> you are literally the reason why we all say 
no, it's fine. I'll I'll do theater here in California, and then you know maybe. <laughs> Fingers crossed someday. Well, you know, a lot of shows that are regional now, you know, like, well, this one's, you know, positioned or is, you know, on, on that road to Broadway. And that was not the case with this show. There's always a hope, I guess, in the back of anyone's mind that new musical, this could be something. So, yeah, I it's a bit of a Cinderella because I, I have been here. I've been here for about 10 years in San Diego living and enjoying life. And this came up and I thought, great, new musical. And then suddenly, the, the you know, the the doors opened. It became something much, much bigger and um, extraordinarily fulfilling and life-changing. So I, I always say I'm you know, still black and blue from pinching myself, and I, I feel like I should have played the lottery the next day because I probably would have won the lottery too. It was a good <laughs> deal. It was a real good deal. What do you think is the importance of regional theater in the overall you know, theater landscape? Yeah, I mean, it's huge, right? Um, you, when you think about Broadway, everyone, you know, a lot of people sort of think like that's the pinnacle. That's that's like we're the best of the best. That's where it all comes together. And, and a lot of times that's that is true. But it's also show business and it is business in New York. It is all about the money. Yes, art is important to a certain extent, but only as long as the art is making money. So sure. commercial commercial theater, especially on that level, is so there's so much riding on it. Um, and what's great about the regional theaters, not to say there isn't some of that pressure as well, but much more of that is people have season you know, subscriptions and they support this theater because they love their aesthetic or their mission statement or the, you know, the type of, of shows that they bring in. Um, so there is a, a, a kind of a different pressure, I think. And it's great because that is an environment where you can take more risks with shows. You can have a chance to try things that, you know, is this commercially viable? We, we don't know. We just want to tell the story in this way. And sometimes it ends up being this zeitgeisty, perfect, you know, storm where things happen and mm -hmm. it, it makes commercial success as well. But what the, the, one of the great things about so many of the regional theaters in our country is that they don't have that same pressure. And so what, uh, especially the, the Globe and La Jolla are both great uh, here in San Diego about that, about trying out new things, finding the mixture of the old and the new, finding the classics and also the stuff that, you know, flips the classics on their head. And it's, uh, San Diego is, is a particularly great city because there are so many theaters including those two big regional houses that allow artists uh, all across the boards you know both sides of the of the footlights to you know have their voices heard in a way that may not be commercially viable necessarily you know right now we're looking at i, I don't know what the future of theater the near future of theater looks like yeah. um but what i do know is that we probably wouldn't have come from away as a broadway experience if it hadn't been such a huge success in San Diego, La Jolla, and then in Seattle, these regional houses and the people who go and support them by buying tickets and attending their shows are largely responsible for the huge outreach that these shows can have once they make it to New York. So never think that by simply going to your regional theater, are you any less of a theater goer than those that go to New York? In fact, you might be dictating what ends up in New York. Oh, absolutely. Absolutely. And there's so much great theater. Again, whether it goes to New York, whether it's you know a huge success financially, um, the idea of art is to express something and hopefully allow others to experience that and have their own connection to it. And sometimes you get that great nexus where art and commercial viability come together. But, sure. uh, you know, the, the thing that you want is to be in a room with people 
telling great stories in an interesting way and connecting with people. That's why this time is so difficult. We don't know when we're going to get in the same room and connect with people again and tell stories in the same way. Uh, it's it's that's what makes theater theater. Yeah, actually, let's talk about one of those great communal experiences, which is the show Come From Away. Uh, it was written music and lyrics and book by a husband and wife team known as Irene Senkoff and David Hine. Yes, yep, that's correct. And how would you describe them as a as a couple? They're amazing people. They they are both actors as well. They started off performing and and starting to write their own stuff. They came from different parts of Canada. Uh, she's more of a city girl from Toronto. David was from Saskatchewan, which is more of a uh, you know, a, a woodsy province. So they both had this sen- different sensibilities coming together. I mean, she went to grad school in New York. They were both in New York during 9-11 as a couple. So they they have this amazing relationship. And they, they, they will joke about this as well, that you know, the fact that they can work together and still stay married. And they tried, they would always say they tried to have those rules of, when we get home, we're not going to talk about the show. We're just going to save that for our work times. And invariably, you know, brushing teeth. Like, what do you think about that? I think that song is a bad, we need to change those lyrics. Um, But luckily they're still going strong and they're, they're still doing well, but they are wonderful in so many ways. They especially are open to, you know, shaping things. And I think because they are actors as well, they know what it feels like to be an actor interpreting other people's words. And it was incredible to be a part of something that they had already written and done, of course, several drafts of and readings of, but to get in the room with them and they were in the room every rehearsal process that we had in all the different cities making changes and being part of it because we had you know we had four out of towns which is very unusual for a, a commercial run you know we did La Jolla and Seattle and DC and Toronto so we had very different geographical locations very different sensibilities different uh people's relationships to the events of 9/11 depending on those different cities was very different and and they were able to take all of that information and sort of create and continue to shape this piece, which is, yeah. you know, it's it's a big piece of material. They had hundreds of hours of interviews of thousands of people, and they created this cohesive tapestry with a through line, with clear characters, and they were able to distill it down to something that is, A, cohesive and, and comprehensible, but also, you know, incredibly theatrical and, and, and moving and powerful now, in 2009, they wrote a musical called My Mother's Lesbian Jewish Wiccan Wedding. <laughs> yes. <laughs> and that was really the only thing, the only musical they wrote before Come yeah. From Away, which is crazy. Yeah. But from yeah. that, a college dean uh, had seen their work and thought that they might be a good duo to musicalize the true story of the city of Gander. Now, can you tell me a little bit about Gander, where it is? And what is special about it geographically? So, so Gander, Newfoundland. So, a, a bit of history, abridged history on on Gander. It is uh, in the province of Newfoundland and Labrador, northeast tip of North America. It's, it's as far north and east as you can go before you hop across the Atlantic to to Europe. And what was special about Gander, in particular, and t- continues to be, is they have a big airport. And they had that uh, originally because. Back in the old days, um, planes couldn't necessarily go all the way across uh, transatlantic travel without refueling. So often flights, uh, military as well as commercial, would stop from the U.S. in Gander, refuel, and then make their journey across to Europe and, and vice versa. 
So it became a very important hub for transatlantic travel. And then, of course, we fast forward in the jet engines and, you know, fuel economy and things like that. Gander was no longer as vital of a hub, but it still had this huge international airport. Kind of the Barstow, <laughs> California. Yeah. It's like you're driving to Vegas, you're driving to Utah in my case, and you're like, all right, well, I know I can stop in Barstow. Fuel up yourself, fuel up the car and get going. Exactly. Yeah. Yeah, it, absolutely true. And it's a small town. It's a small province. It's a small island. I mean, everything about it is nothing about it is is big city. So it's a culture of taking care of each other, partly out of just necessity of there aren't that many other people. There aren't that many other resources. It's a place where kindness and generosity was just, you know, bred into them for generations. And it ended up being an extraordinarily important sort of collective character trait when 9-11 happened. Uh, and all of these flights that were heading across the Atlantic back to North America were either diverted back to Europe if they hadn't hit the halfway point of the Atlantic, or they were diverted to Canada because the FAA said we're shutting down U.S. airspace. No one comes in. So if they had enough fuel, they turned around and went back to Europe. But everyone else had to make their way to a, a couple, a handful of airports in Canada where everyone was grounded. And then they just they drained the sky. And Gander, again, being a very small airport, they said uh, at that point in, in that time in 2001, they would have generally about six flights a day that would come through. And on this day, they had 38 commercial jetliners land. Wow. There's a whole thing in our show, 38, 38, 38 planes, because it's a lot of planes. Now, for most airports, that's not a big deal. For most cities, you're like, well, that, that comes in in a couple hours in Atlanta or, you know, in New York. But remember, six flights a day coming through and then 38 commercial jetliners with hundreds, thousands of passengers on them. Their population right. doubled in the course of a day. And they had to then not only say, here, you can land here. Then they have to say, well, we have to get you off of these planes. We have to get you taken care of, food, shelter, love, compassion. Um, so the sort of geographical as well as social generosity that was bred into them and, and you know, became so much of their, their natural human kindness was so important because there's a lot of people who were very scared that landed there that day and had no idea what was going on. And they ended up landing in this incredible love nest of Gander, Newfoundland. So just to review the numbers, the city was about 9,000. And then on 9-11... About 16,000 people is what they sort of say. Gander was not built for that. They didn't have the infrastructure, right. resources. Um, you know, the, the character that I played in Come From Away, my primary character was Oz Fudge, who was one of the um, town police officers, a constable. And they had two police officers in Gander. Total. Wow. So we're dealing with a city that does not have the infrastructure, but luckily they had the heart. Now, this beautiful experience was commemorated with a 10-year reunion. So in 2011, Irene and David, the composers, writing duo, go to this reunion and interview as many people as they can. And like you said earlier, in interviewing everyone, they have almost too much material. <laughs> And so then I, it seems to me that the process of creating this musical was just narrowing down what information are we going to use to tell this story? 
Mm-hmm. Uh, one of the things that I think is really smart about the way that this show is constructed, and it kind of sounds like a backhanded compliment, but the score feels to me like it just gets out of the way of the story. It doesn't mean it's not exciting. It doesn't mean that it's not pleasing to listen to. On the contrary, it's thrilling and it has that heartbeat of these Celtic rhythms and all of you incredible performers, which you know sound amazing up there. And yet there are very few places to applaud, mm-hmm. very few quote-unquote songs with a beginning and end. It's this very theatrical magic trick that just keeps going and constantly spitting out information from just a handful of people on stage playing essentially 16,000 people. Mm-hmm. <laughs> yeah, it's, it's kind of magical, right? I mean, it, it was, and it was so purposefully done. The whole time was about this, the simplification of the storytelling, making sure it was painfully clear, and that theatricality of we are storytellers. Uh, we are going to, you know, tell you this story. It is not about, like as you said, sort of these these numbers and then button and then number and then button. There, throughout the course of the development of the show, there were other numbers that had, you know, buttons and applause breaks, and we sort of kept trimming them away. And you know, there was talk about, well, there should be an intermission if it's going to be on Broadway. We got to sell concessions, and you know, it was absolutely not. The people in Gander couldn't leave. This audience needs to be sort of feel that same containment that same drive, that same intensity. I love um, that. And it came from the writing team, the producers. I mean, it was never a, a battle of, of, for, for, you know, commercial profits uh, for this, which was great. So yeah, the whole thing was incredibly deliberate and so artfully shaped. Isn't that, that's so cool because it's just dripping with empathy. <laughs> and yet, and yet to hear that it was so intelligently and analytically put together makes my OCD heart really happy. <laughs> right. It made mine as well. Uh, I mean, you know, the, the show, when you watch it, it's simple storytelling. It's just 12 actors, three tables, 13 chairs, but the, the precision of what had to happen, it's also incredibly complex. It looks effortless, but as a performer makes me break out into a sweat when I think about possibly being a swing. Right. Like, are you kidding uh, me? I know. Each of them covered four or five of our principal tracks, which is, I mean, imagine learning one of our tracks, maybe two. So it's, yeah, it's one of those where God bless them. They are some of the most incredible, intelligent artists I've ever uh, come in contact with because I could never do it. I had hundreds of performances to get it in my body. Thank God, because I would have screwed the pooch on it opening night if I hadn't, because it's so complicated. But part of the the whole joy of the show is that it is fun as an actor to toss the ball over to you. And they, they toss the ball back to me. And then, you know, we keep the energy going. And Chris was very, very adamant about keeping the story moving. He never wanted the audience to, to get ahead of us. He never wanted the audience to, you know, know what was coming next or to sit back. He wanted them to be ready to applaud and then go, oh, oh, I can't applaud yet. Oh, okay. And then at the end of the show, suddenly there's this huge, you know, cacophony of applause and excitement because, this release of, of pressure and joy and excitement comes out at the end of the show because there is this sense of hope. Catharsis. Is catharsis, of course. Yeah. And it's, it was always a good show, but when we got to Broadway, it was, it was a great show. So you guys end up on Broadway by, I think, is it March of 2017? Yeah. Yeah. We officially opened March 12th, 2017. And I mean, you're a hit. Yeah. Big time. And 
what an emotional season on Broadway, by the way, because not only was it you guys, but it was Dear Evan Hansen as well, both of which turned me into puddles. Yeah. And so, my goodness, what what beautiful theater you guys had uh, that year. You Mm -hmm. are nominated for many, many Tony Awards as a show. Chris Ashley, your director, wins for Best Director. Is there anything you want to share about the the whole Tony Awards experience? That was your first time going through it. Yeah, I mean, what do you? I mean, the Tony Awards. It's just one of those. This can't be real. This kind of you know, you see it on TV or you hear about it or you hear the term Tony Award winner or you know Tony nominated performance and. But to be a part of a show to begin with is great. To be a part of a show that's on Broadway is even better. But to be a part of a show that is a hit and is nominated for all these Tony Awards and you get to perform in Radio City Music Hall in front of 5,000 people on national television. And the chaos of backstage is unimaginable to people watching (laughs) at home. But then as soon as that, you know, the big LEDs, I'd say the curtain goes up, but it wasn't. It was like a big screen of TVs and, you know, LED (laughs) stuff that go up. This huge, expensive wall. Um, but then once that happens, you're just you're you're just doing your show again, and you're just with those same people telling that same story. So it was incredibly comfortable in a way, and it also it still doesn't seem real. It seems like one of those actor fantasies. You wake up in the morning, like, oh, that would have been great if that happened. But <laughs> it did happen. I got to you know to be there and do that, and and we didn't win as many Tonys as we had you know had of course hoped. But as you said, it was an incredible season. That was a it was a very very tight uh there are 13 new musicals uh in in our, right. our our tony season but for us it was just so amazing that our you know quote unquote little show it was just one of those whirlwind incredible journeys that are just just unforgettable and uh, i'm not sure i could ever do anything like that again if i ever went back to broadway uh and did another tony awards i don't know i don't know if it would be as as good it would just be so different I'd still do it. Don't get me wrong. I still do it, Jeff. I do it. They called and you were like, uh, I don't know you guys. Like the first know. time was so special. <laughs> <laughs> but it, it'll never be come from away. <laughs> I remember being so happy when you guys won Best Director, though, because I felt like it was such a great representation for what made your show so special Mm -hmm. for you guys to win a bunch of disparate awards that you know lighting here choreography there whatever but for it to all kind of rest in christopher ashley's hands Mm -hmm. literally that award felt like such a great symbol of what made your show special that season yeah he he certainly shepherded shepherded yeah shepherded this show what's great about chris is He's an incredible artist and an empathetic human, um, but he also studied math. So he's a mathematician. And one of the, the great strengths that he brought to the show was that, you know, if we do this here, plus that, we're going to get this. It was artistic math, mathematics, which is really mm-hmm. cool to be in the room for and be, you know, listen to the process of, because we were always included. But for, for Chris to win the Tony for that, it was extraordinarily special for us just because we had been on this journey with him for so long. And knew how much heart and how much brain um, he put into it and how you know generous he was with us and how kind. So great. The show's a hit. And I mean, it was running up until coronavirus. It's still on Broadway, technically, right? It is indeed. So that's been three years now, over three years of sold out crowds on the Broadway. Yep. What I'm also really grateful for is you guys put together a kick butt original cast album that you can 
that you can just put on from track one and listen to the whole show and experience the show. Yeah. Did you guys have to basically kind of rewrite the show in order to turn it into an album? So the Yeoman's work went to um, our writing team, David and Irene, as well as Ian Eisendrath, who was our, our uh, music director and music supervisor, August Eric's Moen, who was our arranger. Um, they had to figure out a way to condense it, but also keep the cohesion of the narrative at least present enough that people wouldn't go, well, wait, what now what's happening? Why are they in a bar suddenly singing? There had to be some kind of a narrative thread that would continue to keep it all together. So when we, and again, we had been doing the show for a long time at that point, the, the, the cast, we had eight hours in the studio to record the entire cast recording, which Insane. is not enough time, uh, especially considering that all 12 of us were there for basically all eight hours. There are very few solo duets without some sort of a choral, you know, uh, support system to them. So it was an exhausting eight hours, but the amount of work that the team put into it to, to create that cohesion and to make sure that it, as you said, you can put it on and listen to it and know what's happening and get the idea behind it was, was so important. Uh, and we were so grateful that they did all that work because it was, you know, it was hard work, but when we got in there, we knew what we were doing and we knew we had a great representation of our show. If there's anybody out there who hasn't seen the show or who doesn't know about it, uh, I really recommend you checking out the cast album and just kind of experiencing it because not only is it great, but it's incredibly relevant to right now. And when I took a second to reacquaint myself with it and, and study it over the past week or so, I really found a lot. Now, mm -hmm. If you haven't already picked up on this, the show happens on 9-11. And I wanted to ask you what you were doing on 9-11. Uh, we were actually in D.C., another, of course, <laughs> horrible place to be that day, um, rehearsing for the national tour of the Buddy Holly story. Oh, so no way. all of these New Yorkers were transplanted down to D.C. and, you know, are kind of stuck there uh, during the, this, this time of tragedy. And we were set to fly out on September 13th to Anchorage, Alaska to go tech the show. And we got pushed back a little bit there. But but the, it was just, uh, of course, for everyone, an, an intense time. But for all of us, being New Yorkers, but then also being in D.C., but being together, it was just sort of this in, incredible support system. I've said on the podcast before, I've talked about what I was doing at 9-11. I was an LDS missionary at the time. And so I was already in kind of like this high entry P experience. Hmm. it's new every day and you're constantly meeting people and you're in weird situations that make you uncomfortable and you're just being like, all right, let's do it. Yeah. <laughs> so there's that, but also there's a complete lack of media in your life. You're not watching TV. You're not reading the newspaper. It's actually kind of against the rules. Hmm. So nine 11 is actually a very, it's an experience that I don't have a lot of visceral emotional reactions to mm -hmm. not like a lot of other people sure and so honestly the way that i'm able to emotionally process that experience is through pieces like this because mm -hmm. it lets me in a lot on what i wasn't aware of was happening at the time and i was wondering if this experience has helped you process that time in any in, in a different way than say for me yeah absolutely in having been more directly uh, sort of affected, as you said, sort of viscerally by the events, it's, you know, a, a wound. There, there is a wound there that continues. But what was so amazing about the Come From Way and, the, the, of course, the stories it's based on was that 
against this backdrop of these terrible events, this you know darkest visage of humanity, there is this this goodness, this hope that that was there as well. It's you know painfully relevant right now, where we're in this world that there's a lot of stuff going on, and there's only so much you can do. It's out there. What do you do? What do you focus on? Mr. Rogers said, look for the helpers. That was something that David and Irene always said is something that drove them in this piece was this story is about the helpers. These are people who were willing to help no matter what. And that's just how they were programmed. And it, to them, it wasn't a big deal. But to the most, the vast majority of the rest of us, it was a huge deal. The show to me has a lot of similarities to say a chorus line, which is a show I just got done doing. Mm-hmm. And and so maybe that's why it was on my mind. But even down to its inception, right, that it was created through all of these interviews, mm-hmm. the the kind of realism and candid acting style, naturalistic even acting style, very much uh, remind me of a chorus line. If you're pushing or if you're doing any quote unquote actory thing, it doesn't mm-hmm. work. Right. And you guys just were able to nail that tone, I think, just perfectly. What I would love to do, usually in the show, we go through the whole plot. That mm-hmm. is a little impossible for me to do, at least with this show, because right. there there is so much story. Yeah. And because so much of the writing is literally just someone spitting out information to you. Mm-hmm. That instead, I would like to go through with you and talk about the characters, about some sure. of the main people that we meet through these these stories. So in the town, in the show, we have the mayor who, much like a small town mayor, probably had no idea what he was <laughs> signing up for when this happened. But God bless him. And uh, at his side is Officer Oz, who was played Mm -hmm. by you, of course. I know that his name's Oz, but I just would rather refer to you as Officer STFD. Like, I feel like that's like a better title, right? I think that's sort of what everyone calls Oz at this point. (laughs) (laughs) The joke of the show, or it's right at the beginning of the show, actually. It's the first sort of speech that Oz has. It's sort of, it's one of the first big kind of, you know, insights into these people, like things are happening, but they're also really funny. And the show is going to be, you know, a fun ride, as well as a cathartic ride. So it was, it was a great way to find that balance is this opening speech that Oz has. And this is all, you know, the vast majority of what's in the show is verbatim, if not very close to verbatim. And this is something that Oz would do, he would pull people over. And instead of giving a warning ticket, uh, instead of giving a ticket, I should say, he gives them a warning ticket. And on the ticket, he would just write, STFD. And so for the first chunk of time, people are just like, I, I don't know what this means. Do I owe you money? What does this mean? He goes, no, slow the f- down. So, and then it became a, a kind of a, a bit of a, a regional joke. And then once the show hit, it became a much bigger regional joke and you couldn't write them anymore. Um, <laughs> people are speeding just to, yep. <laughs> that's fantastic. I don't know how I didn't mention this yet. I was so like, bogged down in the pathos of this show it's freaking hilarious yeah it's a very funny show i laughed out loud several times full belly laugh yeah it's very funny (laughs) okay also in the town you got beulah how can you not love beulah i know right she works at she works at the academy Mm -hmm. gander academy yep and she also has an assistant i forget her name it starts with an a oh annette annette yeah. Well done. It's like you've done yeah. the show for a couple of years. I only did it twelve hundred times. <laughs> <laughs> you've also got Bonnie. Bonnie. Bonnie works with all of the animals at the SPCA. Yep. 
what is the what does that stand for? Society for the Preservation Prevention of Cruelty Against Animals. Cruelty Against Animals. There you go. Yep. Boom. You knew it. See? I doubted myself. <laughs> so those are some of my favorites of the town. Now, they are all living their lives, right? Until they hear that all of these planes are landing and they have all of these people to take care of. And of course, what I do love about the show is that it makes sure to give time to the nuance of the situation. There were people in town who are like, why do they have to come here? Why can't they go to Toronto where they mm-hmm. could actually be absorbed? And I love that quote when the mayor says, well, if anything goes wrong here, we've got a lot less people to lose. Because yeah. at this point, every plane was being considered a bomb. Right. So we're just going to treat every single plane in the sky at this point like it's a bomb threat. So let's send them all to Gander, I guess. There's a lot of empty space. Yep. And And just kind of the starkness of that realization, but also being willing to laugh at it is 100% come from away for me. Yep. Now we have all of these people in the plane and you guys are also playing these people from all over the world who are trapped on these airplanes, right? Up to 28 hours on these planes without being able to leave. Yeah, I mean, some of them would, would had taken off from Europe and by the time they, you know, circled for a while and then were set down and then they had to wait to get, you know, all the security in, in place to, as you said, make sure that people weren't, you know, carrying bombs or bringing venom out of the, of the plane. So it's, there were some people who were on planes for 28 hours straight. Crazy. There's this hilarious montage about what do you do on a plane for 28 hours? <laughs> you watch every movie they have on there. Yeah. I think they break out the booze pretty oh, early yeah. on. Yeah. I got to play a drunk guy on the plane. It was great. <laughs> Fantastic. Some of my favorite characters on the plane include Kevin and Kevin, obviously. Yes, of course. Kevin and Kevin are boyfriends. They're both named Kevin, which you know is always, it's a recipe for disaster. Never date somebody that has your same name. you like, you think it's going to be cute on Instagram. Just don't do it. It's not. It's never cute. But they're also really great characters mm-hmm. trying to figure out, okay, we've landed in this small town. Do we tell people we're gay? Like, are we going to get gay bashed? What's going to happen? They end up having a really, actually two very different experiences one who kind of embraces the generosity and love of this town, the other one who really is, I think, grieving in a way that doesn't allow him to do so. Yes, yeah? I agree. Yep, absolutely. But it is kind of cute that when they finally do let it slip that they're together, all of these people in the town start talking about how they know people who are gay. Yeah. And there's this great line where he says, wow, I, I somehow we found the gayest town in Newfoundland must be something in the water. And then one of the locals says, that's why I only drink beer. That's why I drink the beer. It's, <laughs> it's one of the funniest little scenelets in the whole show. I love being in that scene. So, it was so great. great. Then we have Hannah. Hannah is a character who received a new song right before you went to Broadway, right? That's right. And she has a son who is a firefighter. A New York City firefighter. Yep. And she's obviously incredibly worried about him. One thing that I always forget is that there was a life before cell phones. Yeah. One of the big points of the show is that everybody wants to call their loved one, but like people didn't have cell phones. So it was, how do we even make contact with the world? And now what's fascinating is that in this pandemic, in this kind of crisis that we're facing, all we have now is our phones. It's just like a complete 180. I know. Everything is technology driven now. Yeah. (laughs) what's really beautiful is Beulah the beauty and Hannah become very close. Yeah. Cause they both, they both have sons who are firefighters. Correct. And Beulah sees that Hannah 
you know, is so distraught about not knowing if her son is okay that they stay with each other mm-hmm. for like the next three days. Mm-hmm. One of the people that is for sure 100% true is Beverly Bass. Correct. And she's an extraordinary character, a mm-hmm. true life character, but she is number one, one of your, one of the show's biggest fans. <laughs> Absolutely. Oh, yes. Yep. Super fan. <laughs> she's one of the first female airline pilots, commercial airline uh, pilots mm-hmm. of all time, and certainly yeah. the first in American Airlines history. That's right. Kind of a tough broad from Texas with a husband and kids, but just found her passion flying planes. Everyone who was there, of course, was incredible and and you know theatrical. But to have uh, Beverly also be there, just given her history and what a trailblazer she was and sort of a, you know, a lighthouse for, for females in aviation. But to have her happen to sort of be there, it's, an, it's a, a strange coincidence, if nothing else, to have her be a, woven into this, into this story and to, to be there, as you said, sort of a, a tough broad. And the thing that she loved the most in life was planes. I mean, that was her passion since she was a, a young girl. Then to have the thing that she loved the most be something that was used as a weapon to fly into these buildings and to murder all these people. Um, and she, yeah, she loves the show. First time she came and saw it, she just bawled the whole me and the sky song, which is almost verbatim the interview that she and David and Irene had together. Cause she didn't know she, they, they'd done interviews and asked her questions and she knew there was a show and that she was in it. And then suddenly this, this beautiful, incredible anthem song for, for women comes on and she and just her whole family are bawling because they had no idea it was going to be her words and how powerful her story was, especially in this context. It was something very special to to be a part of. And Me in the Sky is probably the song of the show that has now a life outside of the show. Mm-hmm. And I got to know Come From Away first by that song. Mm. That was what reached my ears first. And there was always a lot of hype surrounding it. And seeing it in the context of the show lives up to all the hype. What <laughs> what an extraordinary song. Jen Colella is an extraordinary performer. I can't imagine anybody else doing it. I'm sure many women can also do it beautifully. But what is so amazing to me about the way that she performed that song was she is strong and belting her guts out, and yet so at ease. Mm-hmm. As though she was in some nice comfy slippers, spilling her soul to just like her friend, but it's actually to a theater full of people with a thrilling band playing a, a kick-ass song. Does that she, make sense? It does, it does, and she is that human. She is just everything, um, all of those things. You know, she's vulnerable, she's powerful, She's confident, she's soft, she's generous, she's loving, she's firm. I mean, it's just, she is that that person. And that song, you know, was was written not for her, but as she began to sing it, they, you know, changed the key to fit in her voice better. And yeah, everyone who sings it is, of course, wonderful. But there is something always to be said for when a song is written for the first person, it's sort of meant to be written for in that context. There is something very special about it. And the way the show is staged, I got to sit on stage sort of as a bit of a Greek chorus in that, in a horseshoe in the dark behind and just all 1200 shows I did, I watched her or, you know, a handful of others 
there were not that many other people who did our roles throughout the course of the history of the show, um, got to be a part of that. Didn't get to sing it, didn't get to stand up and clap and sing, but I got to just be in that space. And she is one of the most painfully consistent, like almost to the point of like, are you kidding me? You're eight shows a week, three years, you're doing that. And her voice was just always on spot, but it was also every single time just as powerful. It, she never phoned it in. She just never came in and relied on the vocals. It was always that package deal that you mm -hmm. hope and dream it'll be when you go see somebody. You're like, yeah. she is it. She is Christmas morning in that song every single time. That's so cool. One of my favorite parts of watching the song live, talking about this communal experience that we have in theater, it, it's very specifically constructed so that there is no applause at the end of the song. It goes directly into, uh, you know, a scene. However, every time that I've seen the show and or like bootleg versions of the song. <laughs> there are bootlegs? Oh my gosh. <laughs> I, know, I know, right? <laughs> The audience breaks out into applause, not because she sings a high note, not because it's the end of the song, but because she just lists an accomplishment. Mm -hmm. All she says is, I'm, I was the first you know, woman to fly in American Airlines, and yep. they couldn't help themselves. They had to applaud. Mm -hmm. How special. I know. So that cool. Was, it's incredible. Again, the sort of the zeitgeist of the show, the timing of it was incredible in many ways, but not the least of which is this power anthem about being a strong woman and it's that's okay and you know there was something very special about that that m many audiences <laughs> resonated with vocally and and you know in terms of applause and response and rightfully so it's an it's an incredibly important story and an important moment in the show uh who else we got on the plane we have ali yes ali now ali is egyptian and what a heartbreaking story he he goes through so he's really wanting to help and everyone's kind of afraid to talk to him. Mm -hmm. And then finally he, he's like, can I please help cook the food? I'm literally an award-winning five-star. Right, I, I oversee chef. all these hotels. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> and they're like, Oh, just kidding. Yeah. Come on in. <laughs> <laughs> and then at the end, which is just so heartbreaking when it is time for everybody to go home, they are, they have the clear to take off again. They won't let him on without doing a complete strip search, yeah. which in his culture is forbidden. It's forbidden for anyone to see him, I think, from the navel to his knee. That's right. Unless they're his wife. Right. And so to be doing that and then also have Beverly Bass in the room because she's the captain is just this strange culture clash of people trying to be themselves. But it, it seems like no matter what, you're doing something wrong by being who you are. Yeah. <laughs> it's sometimes unfair. This happened, and Beverly spoke to us about it, how she said, I mean, it was the last thing I wanted to do. I did not want to have to do that. I did not have to be in there. And, but she said, but I had to. It was my job as a captain to be in that room and be sure that the check was done appropriately because it's my plane. And if anything yeah. that happened, it, it would be it would be my fault. The, the buck stops there. And for Ali, it was just, you know, doubly, triply, quadruply humiliating. And that was that was an arc that was one of the arcs that kind of was crafted throughout the course of the, the multiple rehearsal processes that we did. And the changes was that Ali's track was was finessed a little bit, too, because sometimes 
there wasn't a lot in the show that you're like, well, there's not that much drama, really. I mean, yeah, they don't want to be there. They're worried about home, but it's also like, this is kind of fun. There, there are little micro dramas, but it wasn't like your normal good guy, bad guy clashing throughout the course of a musical. And so that was one of the, the things that David and Irene and, and Chris and the whole team wanted to be sure about was that people were reminded, like it wasn't all rainbows and butterflies and unicorns. There were, people were scared. There were dangerous things. There was unknowns. And Ali's, sort of arc throughout the course of it got fleshed out a bit um, so that we could be reminded of that, that it wasn't just, oh, they get to go home. It's like, well, yeah, but when they get home, what's going to happen? Now he has to go back home and go back to work. And his daughter, he has to drop her off at school. And she says she's scared to go in. Um, right. You know, there's still a lot to work through in the world. And for Ali, especially, it was it was a difficult return to, to, to the United States and to American life. I really like also how those moments of reality are given to say what it's like to be charitable. So this town is receiving huge shipments of food to take care of everybody, right? But then the reality is there's no place to refrigerate the food, right? Like they didn't ship refrigerators with all of those donations. And so then what do you do? Well, in Canada, you use the hockey rink, which I think is just... Brilliant. Which is where we then performed our concert versions when we went to Gander was in the the walk-in refrigerator, the community center. Yeah. Crazy. This is insane. <laughs> All right. I mean, come on. You couldn't even write this. I know. That's what from, we, oh, that's from what beginning we to the end. Whole, the whole process. We've said that about the entire process is, I mean, obviously it was written. Yes, we wrote this, but, but like the whole world of this show, the, the entire evolution of it, the way it all happened every step of the journey, like you couldn't write it. Honestly, Donald Trump being elected before we got to Broadway, there was this division in America. Suddenly our show comes in and talks about, no, what about not being afraid of the other person? What about, you know, taking care of each other? What about reaching across? And even though you may be nervous or not sure, listen to that person. So the the show, every step of the, of the way had so many, you know, amazing moments of, wait, how did that happen? This is crazy timing. This is just unreal. It's like Narnia. I'm in Narnia. How on earth would you write a musical about 9-11? You know what I <laughs> yeah. mean? Like, it seems insane. And then this kind of presents itself. And you think, oh, of course, this is the way to tell that story. I can't wait to discover what the inspired ways to tell the stories about what we're going through that are actually better told through the stories of others, other people, not necessarily the ones who are at Ground Zero, for example. Yeah, absolutely. Um, it's so poignant and relatable and approachable. It's much easier to explore this national tragedy, this worldwide tragedy through Gander than I think it even is through New York City. Oh, absolutely. What was incredible over and over again was, you know, students who would come, even not even students, like younger people who had not been alive, you know, when 9-11 occurred and had heard about it, had read about it, had seen videos about it. But we would over and over get the feedback of like, I didn't get it. I mean, I didn't, I knew it had happened. I knew it was bad, I, I, but having, it's, there's a difference between living through something and being connected to something. And this is a great way to then have them get to live through it, but in a positive way, they understand what happened, but it's not about that as much as it's about, okay, this is what can happen. Even if those things are happening. Because I'm a farm boy, I have to talk a little bit about the animals. So turns out, of course, there are animals on these airplanes. Of course. And Bonnie to the rescue. She ends up going like crawling into all of these airplanes to find if there are any animals. And she finds eight dogs, nine cats 
and two chimpanzees. Right. Once again, you can't make this stuff up. No. Nope. Not only does she find two chimps, one of them is pregnant. Like, yep. are you Anga. serious? Anga's pregnant, <laughs> rare bonobo chimpanzee. And all of the stress, of course, affects the animals. And so the chimpanzee goes into labor and loses the child, which is very sad. But then the chimps go to a zoo is it in Ohio. Is that right? Columbus. Yep, Columbus Zoo. And she ends up having a new baby and they name the baby what? Gander. Gander. Yep. <laughs> I know. And the dog Ralph goes on to be a champion cocker spaniel. I mean, it's just like all of these things. You're like, how is this possible? You can't write it because you don't have to write it. It really happened. You don't. like. And if anybody was like, yeah, right. You're like, check the receipts. It's all there. Oh, no. People all the time after the show would say, was that real? Did that really happen? We're like, yeah, everything that happened really happened. People did not believe us half the time. Well, like any good piece of art, I find that it's often reflective of the society in which it's originally produced. But then as life continues and, and the world changes, you find new ways to relate to it. And we've already talked a little bit about it being a very relatable piece because of the 2016 election and the you know huge division in our country but now here we are in 2020 with a pandemic and i got a little sad this morning re like listening to the show because i was like oh what i wouldn't give to like cook breakfast for some strangers right now mm-hmm. you know what i mean like th- one of the hard things about this is that sometimes i just want to do something to make myself feel better sure. and I've been told the thing to do is to not do anything. One of the really beautiful lines in the show is that at the 10-year reunion of this whole thing in Gander, they say, we are commemorating what we lost, but we're celebrating what we found. Mm -hmm. And I think I realized this morning, I'm not sure if I know what I found yet through this, this whole quarantine experience. I know what I'm working through, uh, but it really inspired within me that as we come away from it, I'm not only commemorating what has been lost and so many people have died, but also celebrating hopefully some new things that I found. I don't know what those are yet, but. Well, and sometimes that comes with, with hindsight. I mean, you're talking about what they said on the 10th anniversary, right? They, they did as time moved on, they were able to look back and go, yeah, I mean, we had so many of these amazing relationships formed and, and, you know, bonds and experiences together against this backdrop of something horrible, but it's looking back on it and saying, Oh, you know what? I learned something through that experience. That's beautiful. Thank you for sharing that. (laughs) Oh, thank you. Oh, I guess there's also Nick and Diane. I can. Oh yeah. Love Nick and Diane. So Nick and Diane, Nick is from London. Diane is from Texas. And they are strangers who meet and start talking Mm -hmm. and they end up married. (laughs) Yes, they do. And coming to see the show hundreds of times. Yes, I know. No way. You have met Nick and Diane? We've met basically everybody who's referred to in the show. Some of the minor characters we haven't. But yeah, oh no, they they came uh, well over 100 times. Beverly came 150 something times. By the time I left, I mean, I'm not sure now how many times they've seen it. But no, they're they are still just as much in love as they were during <laughs> during the, the days following 9-11. It is incredible. It's so sweet. Oh my gosh. Yeah. Jeez. What a what a cool experience. <laughs> How are you planning to like pass this on to your son as he gets old enough to understand what this was? Well, gosh, I mean, I, I 
I hope I've I'm being <laughs> the kind of father that that sort of gander was to those people. You know, I hope I'm being loving and generous and open and and not afraid. So yeah, I mean, I think that's that's the idea is think about other people as well. And that's, again, it's kind of reflective of what's happening right now in our world. There are a lot of people who are. Like we're taking care of ourselves, not just because we don't want to get sick. Of course, that's part of it. But the idea of all this is stay at home so you don't get sick and you don't get other people sick and they don't get other people sick. And then the people out there right now who, you know, don't want to do that. And they say, well, it's my freedom. It's what I, I should be able to make my choice. And we can, you know, you know, argue politics all you want. But at the same time, it's this idea of well, what about the other people around you? Yes, mm-hmm. you should have your life and your freedoms, but at the cost of what around you? So I think for me, that's an important thing to instill in, in youth, especially when they're in these formative years is don't, there are other people, think about other people. How does that make her feel when you just said that to her? And I, I hope that's something he'll, you know, grow up and be a nice kid, be a nice guy. I'd like that. It does kind of go to show that you can't legislate kindness. Mm-mm. We try and legislate against hate, but truly we learn kindness from receiving love and I think from art that can be very healing and soul enlarging. This show is, is a particularly good example of that, of would we have taken care of these people? Okay, there's hope in this world. If they can do it, I can do it. If I can do it, he can do it. If he can do it, she can do it. And maybe that we always talk about this ripple effect. That was something we talked about a lot during the show is that one little, you know, stone in the pond causes the whole pond to send out these, you know, circular ripples. And every time we we finished the show, every single time I did it, it always felt like, you know, we, we did it. Yes, the applause at the end of the show happens. and But it was knowing that we had sent goodness out into the world. We had told a story about kindness. We just sent a thousand people, you know, in that show out into the world, hopefully being kinder. Amen. So let's talk a little bit about the ripples before we end here. Sure. After everybody left, there was a scholarship created for the town. Yeah, over the, over the course of the ten years, um, in between the the events and the ten year uh, reunion, it came back, and it was. I mean, yeah, and it's continued to be more and more money, millions of dollars in scholarships for for the people of of Gander and Newfoundland, the surrounding communities. Uh, again, it's a way for someone to say, "How can I do anything to help pay back what they did?" And it just became this snowball of generosity that's still to this day provides provides money for students. Any other ripples that you can think of of what have come from this story in real life applications or even maybe with audience members that have experienced it through the musical? Yeah, I mean, there were so many people at the stage door and and coming back to see the show again and talking about what the show had done for them and hearing stories of people, you know, taking that money like, like Kevin T did and, you know, saying, here's, here's a hundred dollars, go out and just do random acts of kindness for people. People come back and tell stories that they had done that. They had taken that lesson and said, I can do that. Why can't I just take a hundred dollars and I'll break it up into different bills and go buy you coffee. I'm going to go buy you a burger. I'm going to give this money to this person here. I'm going to give this kid 20 bucks to go buy that gift for his mom. Just finding the ways that, that they felt was sending out joy and sending out kindness and generosity. Every every show has good things that come of it, fans that enjoy it. But our show, as I said earlier, sort of this nobler purpose of trying to put out that goodness, it always felt like we were doing that. We were sending out goodness into the world, but also it was 
people are like, okay, I will spend money to come see that show eight times, 200 times, whatever it is. Incredible. Uh, congratulations on being part of musical theater history and one mm-hmm. that not only paid off personally, but artistically as well. Well, thank you. It's, it's uh, you know, it's an extraordinarily special story, an extraordinarily special show based on that story. The people all came from a good place. And so all these good things happened thanks to th- this, you know, this goodness. And that's not always the way it works. So it is a special piece of theater because it tells good stories about good people doing good things. And that's not always the case. Thank you, Gino. You're welcome. Thank you, Jeff. I appreciate it. As always, if you have any suggestions of shows you'd like us to cover on a musical theater podcast, you can always email me at a musical podcast at gmail.com. Also, be sure to follow us on Instagram and Twitter at a musical podcast for more great content. Don't forget to check out our T Public store for lots of fun designs inspired by past episodes. Gino, how can we follow you? I'm super easy. Uh, Gino Carr on the Instagram, the Twitter, and the Facebook, just G E N O C A R R. And I have a website, genocard.com. I'm all Gino Carr all the time. <laughs> Let's see, what should our tagline be? Oh, boy. Goodbye from the rock. <laughs> yeah, all right. Uh, from the rock. Wait, what does that be? Boom, boom, dun, 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 Hey, it's Leslie Odom Jr. here on the Broadway Podcast Network to tell you about the RISE Theater Directory, a program of maestro music. RISE is a national online resource designed to connect and empower backstage and administrative and creative theater professionals from underrepresented backgrounds. If you work or aspire to work in the theater community, this can help you find your next project. And if you hire theater professionals, search the Rise Theater directory to find your next team. Create your profile now and get more information by visiting risetheater.org. That's theater with an R-E-R-I-S-E-T-H-E-A-T-R-E.org because only together we rise. Hi, y'all. This is Kristen Chenoweth. Hi, I'm Gloria Stefan. This is Sarah Bareilles. Hi, I'm Patty Lapone. This is Lynn Manuel Miranda. You're listening to the Broadway Podcast Network.